about, oh gosh, I don't know, it's probably been about 18 years now, God has taken our family on an interesting journey towards his heart for um, adoption. And through a series of God's word, as well as circumstances, wise counsel, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we were on, have been on quite a journey that ended up about 12 years ago with the adoption of our fourth child, Emmeline, up there. We had not intended to do an interracial adoption, but we also had, not, had intended not to not do an interracial adoption. It was just whatever God you want for us. And we walked into an interracial adoption with a, with a bit of fear and trepidation because we knew that ideally for this sweet baby that needed a home, to be in a home that is African-American might be much easier for her. But as she was presented to us as a child um, that was that was needing a home and there were not other African-American homes available to her, we knew this was God's call for our life. I don't think I was quite ready for all that it would involve, although I have loved this wild and amazing journey. And I want you to know that Emily knows exactly what I'm sharing about her today, so I got her permission, and she picked the photos, actually. <laughs> so having Emmeline has brought some very interesting comments and some questions. In fact, I've actually had people say to me, in front of her, not in front of her, after seeing her, does she know she's adopted? <laughs> no, we've hidden it from her. <laughs> Unfortunately, some have been actually a little bit hurtful. I remember being in line at Costco and a, and a man turning to me and saying, so are you a foster parent or are you babysitting? Right in front of my daughter. There has been enough comments like this that has created a little bit of insecurity and fear in Emmeline as she got older at about this age. And when she could tell someone was going to say something like that, she would often grab my leg and look the person in the eye before they could speak something not wise and say, my mommy. (laughs) When she was insecure, threatened, or fearful, she figuratively held on to the reality that I was her mommy by literally hanging on to my leg. Interesting, though, and again, I have her permission to share all of this. Whenever I would discipline her, particularly if we were with a group of moms at the park, and you know, you have to still do the discipline thing, otherwise you're they're really in trouble at the park, right? So whenever I would have to discipline her at the park and pull her aside and give her a consequence, she would often go to friends of mine and do this, Heather remembers this well because I think she had Heather pick her up probably more than anyone. And she would be in Heather's arms. And what Heather didn't know is that she was glaring at me the whole time she was in Heather's arms. So at that point, she didn't want me to be my mommy. (laughs) She had distrust or displeasure. At that time, she didn't really want to be mine. What she didn't understand at that time at such a tender age is that my faithfulness to discipline her evidenced my faithfulness to love her. It evidenced my covenant with her, the promise that I made before the state of California, but more importantly before the Lord of the universe, that I would be faithful to this child and be her mother. I would provide for her. I would care for her. I would love her until he takes me home. As a parent, and I'm sure you can relate to this whether you have adopted or biological kids, as a parent, my heart longs to hear from both my Emmeline and my other three children, I long to hear them one day say, 
Okay, I get it. You mean what you say when you promise. So when I disobey, there are consequences. And when I disrespect you, there will be a breakdown in the intimacy of our relationship. I get this now. (laughs) I know that your consistency to discipline me evidences your consistency to also love me. You who have been faithful to follow through will also be faithful to follow through that when I obey you, there will be positive consequences. And when I respect you and I honor you, there will be intimacy in our relationship. Now, would we all love as moms for our children to say that to us? They will probably be 40 before they do. I still haven't said this to my mom. Well, I couldn't help but think of this desire within my heart for my children as I studied the opening chapter of Nehemiah. We see this covenant relationship, and I think this is the whole focus of this first chapter, this father-child relationship that God has with his people. And like my relationship with my children, it's an if-then relationship. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will scatter you. Although restoration had begun for God's people and he was bringing them back to the land, they were still in this tension, in this middle place between their rebellion and being fully restored. And what this chapter looks at is, are were they going to trust him to fulfill his commitment to fully restore them, fully rebuild them, and fully revive them? And we had these opening chapters of Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3, where we see the beginning of this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with a certain man from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there is in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As a result of their rebellion, as the consequences of their sin, because of the consequences of their sin, Israel was still in a place of trouble and shame. Restoration was beginning. Repentance had happened, but they were still reaping some consequences. And this is big stuff. This word trouble and shame are huge words in the Hebrew The writer does not want us, Nehemiah does not want us to miss how serious this is. It means affliction, this word trouble, calamity, distress, evil, wretchedness. With its ruined walls and burned gates, Jerusalem was a city lying in waste. It was in jeopardy. It was dangerous. It was exposed to attacks and destruction. It had a less than desirable zip code, ladies. You would not want to live in this ungated community. (laughs) Shame is also translated reproach, disgrace, rebuke. The walls were not only the safety for the town, but they were the dignity of the town. And Jerusalem was loaded with contempt by its neighbors. And God cares about his people. Although the temple was in use and the sacrifices for sins were being made, Jerusalem was not yet his community. They had not come together as a community. And this is huge for the very purpose of Jerusalem, the very purpose of the temple was so that God would dwell among his people and they would become that city on a hill, that light in a dark place for the Gentiles. The promise that God would make himself real to his repentant people as their God was not yet fulfilled. And what's key in this passage is that when Nehemiah hears 
that the, about the condition of Jerusalem, Nehemiah appeals to God's covenant love. If you will, Nehemiah goes to God like, I want my children to come to me. And he says, I know that you have been faithful. You have been faithful to scatter us. You told us, you warned us, you sent us your prophets. You gave us time and time and time. And you were faithful to your word. And so I'm counting on you, God, Lord of heaven, that you will also be faithful to restore us. Because you also promised that. That's the other side of your covenant love. Nehemiah 1.5 And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. If you will, Nehemiah is grabbing God's leg and he, he is saying, My God, you are our God. And in this place of insecurity and fear, we will trust that you are our God, that you will turn us, not you who have turned us back, will complete our restoration and our rebuilding and our reviving. Nehemiah knew well Deuteronomy 29 and 30 and Leviticus 26 and, and God's faithfulness and promises. And I think what we want to see here, what God desires for us to see, is that if we have entered into a covenant relationship with him, a promised relationship, but we placed our faith in him, but we have jumped into the arms of rebellion and idols, then we can confidently turn back, figuratively grab his leg, and we can, and we can call him our daddy. We can trust him. We can count on him to finish the work of restoration, rebuilding, and reviving. In this chapter, we're going to gain a greater understanding of how real this covenant is. I pray you already have in your discussion groups and in your time alone with the Lord. But we'll see how committed our God is to us. What it means that the great and awesome God keeps his covenant love with those who keep his commands. And the first thing we see in this passage again is how serious God is about our suffering. He is so serious about your suffering. Nehemiah 1, 4 through 7, as soon as I heard these words that Jerusalem was in trouble, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. God is so serious about our suffering that he burdens a man. He, wa- he weights him down with the reality and the, the mourning He raises up one who knows him, who will intercede for the people, who will weep, who will pray, who will fast. And we can see that we can trust God to respond to our weeping and our fasting and our praying. If he who raised up Nehemiah to do this, we know this is what he desires for us. I was uh, picking up uh, some coffee and I wanted to bring a a latte to a friend of mine who's walking through a tough time. And um, she basically said no. And she said, I just don't think I can do that right now because she's just walking through a time of intense prayer. And I said, well, you don't need to be beating yourself up. (laughs) And she said, no, it's not a time to celebrate. And for me to have a latte right now is a celebration. And she's kind of like me. You know, Starbucks is a little bit of a vacation in a cup. And at this point, 
she knew that wasn't what she was supposed to do. And I'm trying to talk her into it. She really should have said, get behind me, Satan. Because really, and I would have received that. Yes, Lord, I was. Because she knows that right now is a time of weeping and fasting and mourning. It is not a time to celebrate. Celebration will come. The fatted calf will be killed. But right now is a time of weeping and mourning and fasting. And I learned a lot from her refusal of a latte. God hears our weeping and our fasting, and she knows this. God desires that we ease our sorrow, our affliction, that we unburden our spirit by pouring out our hearts before him and leaving it with him. He can more than handle it. He doesn't just handle it. He takes ashes and turns them into beauty. And to not trust this, to not weep, to not mourn, to not fast, is to jump into somebody else's arms and glare at him. And say, I don't think you can handle this. This discipline that I'm walking through or this affliction that I'm walking through is too big for you. So I'm going to jump into somebody else's arms and glare at you. God wants us to realize that we desperately need him. That he wants us to weep and fast and pray. And that he can more than handle whatever affliction or shame James Boyce, I put this on your outline. It's actually um, in his commentary on Nehemiah, but actually the author is Cyril Cyril Barber. The self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. The self-righteous cannot pray. They have no basis on which to approach God. Those are those arms we jump into, aren't they? Self-sufficiency, I will glare at you, God. I'll take care of this myself. Thank you very much. Self-satisfied, I don't, need, I don't need any prayer right now when we desperately need it. Or self-righteous. I love that Nehemiah calls him my God. He calls his God the God of heaven. He governs the affairs of this world with covenant faithfulness. You know, he had to say God in heaven because there's so many pagan gods all around him. And what he was saying in this prayer, for any that would have possibly been listening, is this is the God of gods. This is the Lord of lords. Every other God will bow to this God. He is in heaven. He governs the affairs of the world. He governs the affairs of his people. He is absolutely in control. And I will affirm that his perspective is right. His timing is right. And however long it takes for it to be fully restored, fully rebuilt, and fully revived, it's all good. He sees what I cannot see. And to pray like this is to be put in our place and to recognize that God is so wise and different from us. Like the prophet Isaiah reminds us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord, the same Lord that Nehemiah uses. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. No matter how much I want to glare at God, dismiss him or distrust him, the reality is is that he's so much smarter than I am. He is the God of all gods, including me, who likes to be God of her own life. Anybody with me? No matter how much I want to glare, no matter how much I want to distrust or dismiss his words, just assume that maybe this part of God's word doesn't apply to me. My situation's special. God is right. I was listening this morning to God's word in Corinthians, and I was reminded again that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm quoting Paul. I'm not saying God is ever foolish. But what we might perceive as foolish on God's part, something he commands in his word that we don't want to follow, we need to recognize that the smartest, the wisest of men is absolute foolishness to what we might perceive is foolishness on God's part. Talk about putting ourselves in our place. We need his wisdom. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. We may not understand what he's doing. We may not understand why he's doing it. We may not understand his timing. But we know that his covenant love is steadfast. He's serious about our sorrow and he's serious about our supplication. He's serious about how, who we pray to and he's also serious about how we pray. God desires that we appeal to his love, his covenant love that's revealed in the scriptures. In fact, we know in Hebrews 11 that without faith in that covenant love, it's impossible to please God. It says that God rewards those who believe that he exists and that he does reward those who seek him. Derek Kidner says, Nehemiah comes empty-handed with his request. but He is empty-handed, but not uninvited. God wants us, desperately wants us. It pleases him. It thrills him when we weep and we mourn and we fast and we hold him to his word. He wants to be held to his word because that means we're telling him we believe his word, that we trust him. God desires that we know that we trust his covenant love, that we believe that it keeps us intimate with him. Nehemiah was steeped in God's law. We saw that he's, he's quoting from other places in God's word. He knew that keeping the law, keeping what God says in his word, meant his earthly good, even if he didn't understand it. And, you know, I look at, I look at Nehemiah, and I look at God's word, and I look at so many things, and I ask myself, do I know his precepts as well as I know his promises? Which do I throw in God's face more often? <laughs> I want, to tell, I want to ask him, I want to hold him to his promises, but if I haven't looked at the precept that comes before that promise, I am not really praying in the way that pleases him and releases his power. I need to know equally what he's asked of me as well as what he's promised of me. And Nehemiah gets this, and he wants us to get this. Do we know his law as well as we know his promises? J.I. Packer says, without true theology, understanding his word, though there may be a strong sense of God's reality, that he exists, like Hinduism, animism, New Age, entry into the covenant bond whereby we know that God is truly and eternally ours is not possible. That's kind of heady, but think about it for a minute. Without really understanding who he is, which he's revealed who he is through his law, without really understanding who he is, though there may be a strong sense that he's real, He's out there. Entry into the covenant bond whereby we know that God is truly ours is not possible. Until we know this, we can't know that he is my daddy. He's my God. We can't really grab that leg with confidence. Isaiah 66, 2, he tells us, but to this is the one whom I will, look, I will look, the one I will be truly and eternally his, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Yes, he cares about we understand who he is that we pray to, but also how we pray. Are we prayerfully recognizing our guilt? 
Are we prayerfully calling it out? Are we saying what it actually is? We did this as leaders on uh, on Tuesday for our leader meeting. I was asking leaders, get on your knees and ask God to show you. Have we taken the time to say, show me my guilt? Show me where I have sinned, where I have distanced myself from you, where I am dry, where I am damaged. Matthew Henry says, in the confession of sin, let these two things be owned as a malignancy of it. That is a corruption of ourselves and an affront to God. Ooh. Sometimes we pick one of those, but not the other, right? We, we sin, we fall short, we, we, we do things that are hurtful to ourselves or others, and we feel that pain. But do we remember, do we recognize that it's an affront to God? That we have broken his heart. I don't know about you ladies, but I'm much quicker to go restore a relationship with a human being on earth than I am with my father. Wow. God desires that we weep over our disobedience. Not because he wants to see us sit and soak in it and and beat ourselves up, but because he knows how much it hurts us how much it hurts his name, and he can't fully restore us until we call it out, until we say what it is, until we name it, and we let it hurt a little bit. Remember, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Only those who mourn will be comforted. John Piper says, we must perceive, embrace, and approve from the heart the spiritual fitness that is the dark beauty of God's threatening. Listen to that again. We must perceive, embrace, and approve from the heart. Just think of my little Emmeline, the spiritual fitness that is the dark beauty of God's threatening. Do we, do we recognize that when God warns us, when God disciplines us, it's a beauty. It's a protection for us. And it keeps us fit. God is serious about our suffering, and God is serious about our shame. Nehemiah 1, 8 through 10. Remember the word, the Lord, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, Nehemiah is speaking to God, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, God wants us to be serious about our security. He wants us to be serious about believing that covenant relationship, believing that we, he is ours. He desires that our weeping and our fasting and our prayer bring us to the acknowledgement of this covenant, that he will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us, that his his covenant has two sides to it. Yes, we will reap discipline from when we sin. Yes, we will have consequences. Yes, there will be trouble and shame. But there is another side to it, and that is restoration and rebuilding and revival. God doesn't want us to be stuck on either extreme, to hurry to either one. He doesn't want us to stay stuck in this place of, of disobedience and distance and, and dryness and say, oh, I'm just going to have to just sit in here until I'm pruny and, and just stay distant from you. The sin that I committed was just way beyond what you can do. No, he can bring you in scattered from the outermost parts of the earth. 
nor does he want us to jump so fast and cover over our sin and just say, I know you're the God that restores and rebuilds. Let's just do it now. He wants us to recognize that both are true and to be, to be women who trust both equally. That when we're in a season of discipline, that we recognize that the God who was faithful to discipline us is also the God who is faithful to restore us. And when we're in a season of restoration, to remember and not forget that he who has been faithful to restore us, there will be consequences if we now, in our restoration, which we do, start wandering away into other arms. Isn't that the truth, ladies? Sometimes we get restored by God and we're in a place of of faithfulness and intimacy with our Father. And so we start thinking we don't need to be as intimate with him daily, moment by moment. And so then we start to find ourselves distant again, dry again, damaged again, jumping into other arms. God does not want us to get stuck on either extreme, but to be covenant women, women of the promise. That we would see that his faithfulness to scatter us, evidences his faithfulness to restore us, and vice versa. J.I. Packer says, Nehemiah deals with God on the basis that he is the God who stands by his word. Do we deal with God that way? As the God who stands by his word. It's no wonder that Nehemiah's name means Yahweh comforts. If we become people who stand by the truth of God's word, we will experience the daily, moment-by-moment comfort of the covenant God. He will be my daddy. I was talking with my son not too long ago. I got his permission, of course, too. And he was walking through a, a disciplining process with the Lord and, and really wrestling. My, my son um, actually has almost a prohibitive conscience. Like, he's just always looking for his sin. And he was in it, but he was in a season of, of God just shaking him up a bit. And the thing that, I, that the Lord told me to say to him is, Austin, this is evidence that you're his. This is evidence that you are in a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. The fact that you're hurt, the fact that it bothers you, the fact that you're weeping and mourning means you're his. And it was just the most exciting thing to him. In fact, I asked him last night, you know, is it okay if I share that? And he says, you know, I was trying to actually remember what the discipline was. And I'm a safe person to tell because I won't remember. But, um... He said, no, I'm, you can share that. And he says, it's been, I've been chewing on that for a long time now. That the reality is that when I am disciplined, it is evidence that God loves me. Ladies, fear, fear, be afraid. If you disobey God, you're not being disciplined. Because the word of God says he disciplines those he loves. Nehemiah 4.20, our God will fight for us. God is for us in both the restoration and the rebellion. Matt Chandler wrote, I have never recovered from the reality that God is for me. It's almost too much to type. Oh, if we can remember that truth when we're in a season of discipline. God is for me. He means He is for me means that he desires more than a physical return to the land and the temple. He desires uh, more than to just cover the guilt of his people. His covenant is much larger than this. They've built the temple. The sacrifices are being offered. The bulls are being slaughtered to cover the guilt of the people. And yet it's not enough because the walls are down. 
restoration, covenant love, is bigger than just easing your guilt. This is so huge. Don't miss this. God wants restoration of his community. He wants restoration of his people as a whole. He wants to dwell among them. He wants to be in their midst. Oh, ladies, we we find ourselves in a season of sin, and we just want our guilt gone. God wants so much more for you than that. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your God in community. He wants to be among you. And when we miss out on this, when we just just ask for forgiveness but don't really want intimacy with God, we continue the cycle of rebellion and distance and damage and dry rather than enter into the cycle of restoration and repentance and rebuilding. God's covenant is so much larger than covering guilt. God's covenant is about dwelling among us, being our daddy, leg right there. When he is my God, I recognize the scope of his fatherhood. And it means more than just me. It's not just about me and my God. It's the community. Pamela and I were talking about this on the phone, about this whole wall thing. And I I loved what she shared. I actually didn't get her permission. Hopefully she's okay. But she said, you know, we spent a whole semester tearing down our walls. Now we're building one. (laughs) It's like I don't want to have build a protection. And so we talked about the reality that what this wall is about is not just you and me and easing our guilt and building some kind of intimate relationship with just me and God. It's about the community. It's about joining arms and locking arms and being restored together so that we can make a difference in Fresno and Clovis. It's not supposed to be about us and our sin. It's not supposed to be this perpetual support group where we all keep just talking about how we blew it and how we need forgiveness. Ladies, the world is going to hell. We have much to do. We need to lock arms and be restored and rebuilt and revived so that we can be the city on a hill, that we can be a light, that we can be salt. That's what God wanted. Not just that the guilt would be covered of his people, but that his people would come together, all of them, that he could dwell among them so that they could be a light to the Gentiles, so that they would be a place where people would come who do not know him, where they would see his miraculous power. Do we desire restoration, rebuilding, or revival because we just want to ease our guilt or or get some sort of gain or good for our own little personal lives behind our own little gated communities or to evidence the glory of God that is evident in his church? This is the heart of God. This is the covenant God. He is serious about servanthood. He is serious about community. This is about his name and his glory. His city is a place of contempt, and it's not okay. Nehemiah 111, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. O God wants serious surrender that he might dwell among his people. The covenant love of God, who hungers to be with us, to be our daddy, compels a man in the lap of luxury to risk his life to restore a community. We don't find out about his place of influence until the end. And I think Nehemiah doesn't want us to know because he doesn't want it to be about him. This chapter is not about Nehemiah. It's about the covenant God. And so he saves it for the end. It's kind of a by the way. (laughs) But he also realizes he does have a place 
And if he weeps and he mourns, maybe God will want to use him. He was a cupbearer to the king. It was a position of potential influence. In fact, most um, old writings tell us that the, the, the cupbearer was like the chief magistrate or the chief of staff. He was right next to the king at all times. He basically sipped the royal wine to make sure the king wasn't being poisoned. And so he was risking his life every day. Every time the king wanted wine, he was risking his life. And he would drink it, and if he lived, the king would drink it. <laughs> and if he died, the king would go, oh, well, let's get another cupbearer. And so the cupbearer was typically a foreigner, someone that could be trusted that isn't trying to take the throne himself. Incredible place of influence. But ladies, let's not miss this. He could not stir up within himself a desire to be used by God for restoration. God stirred within Nehemiah a burden for his people. Let's not get sidetracked and say, wow, isn't Nehemiah amazing? No, God is amazing. Nehemiah has nothing in him just as you have nothing in you to stir up within yourself a passion for restoration and rebuilding individually and as God's people. It is God who stirs it up in response to Nehemiah's willingness. God's covenant love raises up a man named Nehemiah because the work is not done. And God is still raising up Nehemiah's in our, in our day today. People who will be used by him to fully restore, rebuild, and revive his church. Nehemiah was a church planner. Because God wants to dwell among us and affirm to the community around us that he is our God. But Nehemiah is only a shadow of a far greater cupbearer, ours, who willingly sipped from the cup of God's divine wrath. He didn't just potentially risk his life. He gave it. He said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours. Because we can't keep our covenant with him. Because no matter how hard we try, we do fail. God sent his son, his one and only son, to not just cover our guilt, but cleanse it. Being fully God, he held the only position that could influence the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The only one who could influence our standing with God. Being fully human, he lived a perfect life and exchanged it for our sinful one. He was so serious about our affliction, so serious about our suffering that he took it on himself. Ladies, he did nothing wrong, and he took on all your sin, past, present, future. He took on the sin of all mankind. He became sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Galatians 4.4-6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, my Daddy. Do we realize what it cost God for us to be able to grab His leg? He is so serious about our shame that he paid for it in the most shameful of ways. 
delighting to honor his father's name for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His suffering and his shame were successful. As Nehemiah prayed for success, Jesus was totally successful. It is finished, he said on the cross. The debt has been paid. My righteousness can now be exchanged for their sinfulness. And they now can enter into a relationship with you, Lord, God, Father, that you can dwell among them. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. No more blood of bulls or goats to cover our guilt. Jesus' perfect blood was shed to cleanse it. And this is the beauty, ladies. Now his spirit lives, not in a city, not in a temple, but here, in us, within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to dwell among us, to make himself real, to be our God. May we not stop short. May we be fully restored, fully revived, fully rebuilt for his glory, for this community. And may we never forget that because of Jesus, we can grab his leg and say, my daddy. That you are for us. It's too awesome to say. Shake us, Father. May we trust the truth of your word. In Jesus' name.